invite you guys to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and man, I really hope that you've been following along. met several people that have just started coming to this church within the last couple of weeks, and I really hope that you're following along in Philippians. And again, I invite you to go back to the podcast. We've been in this series called How to Be Happy for several weeks now, going through the entire book, and it's really been fantastic. But I wanted to share with you, um, before we dive into Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12 here, I wanted to share with you some questions that I go over and write down as I'm pouring over messages in preparation for sharing with you. It's always important when you open up God's word to share things truthfully, but a few questions that I try to answer and pour over and mull over as I'm diving into scripture for you are as follows. Number one, what is God really saying here? And I want you guys to understand that it's not just we take a chunk of scripture and try and, you know, spice it up and, and deliver it to you. We really try and dive in. And I'm asking myself, all right, God, I've got this, this passage here that we want to dive. What are you really trying to say to us through this passage? I try and ask myself, what do our people, you guys, what did they need to hear? Because we think about it, and the, the book of Philippians was written in a context to a group of people going through some situations. So I try to imagine and really think through uh, what is going on in some of our people's lives and worlds right now. And what do they need to hear right now? And God, please give me the words through the power of your Holy Spirit to impact them where they are. What about this? How can this truth change individual hearts? How will they remember it best? I ask myself that question as we're going through scripture. How can I package this in such a way that it's going to be memorable? You think about Jesus and the way he dealt with his disciples and when he taught with the crowds, he did that constantly, right? He talked about seeds in the ground, and he talks about branches and vines, and he talked about snakes, and he talked about bread, and he talked about water, and he talked about the birds of the air, and all these other concrete, real living examples of the deep truths that he was trying to convey to them. So I asked myself the question, how can I deliver this in such a way that it's simple, and that it's memorable, and that it's impacting? And then I asked myself, is it transcendent? How do I speak to the 10-year-old and the 78-year-old at the same time? What concepts are we covering that don't just hit one segment of our population, but truly can be applied to all of them? And I'll tell you what, God's word never returns void, but I think today, especially, I'm feeling the weight of all of those questions and the answers that are found here in Scripture as, as we talk about how to be happy in this context of uh, Philippians chapter 2. You see, Paul was tempted by a lot of different things. There probably wasn't a lot of room to be physically tempted where he was. You'll remember he was imprisoned, chained to another guard. You know, probably not a lot of opportunity for physical temptation necessarily. But certainly mentally and spiritually, he was tempted by a lot of things where he was. He was probably tempted to give up at times. He was probably tempted to lose hope as here he is in prison and discouraged. He's probably tempted to think, you know what, I've done enough already. 
Maybe he was tempted to feel sorry for himself when he looks at his circumstances. But yet Paul seemed to have a resilient hope of joy and happiness that could not allow circumstances to keep him down. Several years ago, I was over in Israel and we were in the Dead Sea. And maybe you've seen pictures or seen videos of what happens when you go in the Dead Sea. But I was there with some of my friends, other pastors, and we were swimming in the Dead Sea. And of course, it's got the highest salt content of any body of water on the face of the earth. So because of that, you're always at the top of the water. It's really difficult to go under the water. So we used to have a competition in the Dead Sea to see who could go down the farthest. And you're fighting against all this salt pushing you up, almost like you had giant life preservers strapped to every area of your body. And it was really fun to like see who could stay down the longest. And Paul seems to have that in the spiritual sense. No matter what circumstances overwhelm and overcome and could easily drown many of us, for some reason, this Holy Spirit power within him, this perspective continually brought him back up to the surface and he could not be defeated by circumstance. And so the question that we're asking is how do we get that kind of hope in our lives? What is his secret? And that's the whole entire book of Philippians, how to be happy, how to have joy in a nutshell. What we've entitled the message here this morning is Shiny Happy People. This song ring a bell for anybody out there? Any other people growing up in the 90s? And when I say that, some of you are a little shamed like Shiny, happy people, what does that mean? And how does that apply to what we're talking about here? Well, if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember those phrases here from this morning because this is almost the way Paul is saying, here's how to have an impact, a deep impact in your world. So I've kind of orchestrated and organized the message this morning into two main points. How do we become shiny, happy people? What does that look like? What do we do Two very simple directives, both here from the text. One is in the positive, and one is in the negative, something to avoid. So uh, let's just go ahead in verse 12 and talk about the first one. How do we become shiny, happy people? Let me just read to you, uh, or you can follow along on the screen, a little bit about the first part of verse 12, Philippians chapter 2. It says this, Therefore, and anytime that's there, you know that Paul is referencing uh, you know, an argument that he just made uh, in verses 1 through 11, which is all about humility, all about taking our interests and holding other people's interests above it, all about serving each other, just as Jesus came down and served us. Consider him and his attitude. That's what we need to do as well, right? Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, you don't hear that term too much, do you? pretty much at the weddings and the funerals. That's about it, that you talk about the beloved. But even so, he's reminding them of how much he loves them and cares about them. Therefore, my beloved, he says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. First thing that he's telling them is, you know what, guys? When I was there with you, you obeyed. And, uh, you know, I was there with you and you saw me. And because of that, you obeyed and that's good. 
but I'm not there with you anymore, but I still want you to obey. And before we even get into the two directives, that's an important element for us to understand this idea about obedience, especially when there's not the authority physically right there with you. I think many parents in here, uh, certainly if you're a teacher, I know we've got several teachers in here, you understand that element, right? When you're there, when you're present, people act one way. And even as a parent, when you're there and you're in the presence of your kids, they act one way. And somehow when you think that parent or that authority is gone, it's pretty easy to act another way altogether, right? And that's kind of the talent that parents have is when it's silent or you haven't heard anything for a couple of minutes, you just kind of know that there's something brewing over here, right? Moms having eyes in the back of their heads, right? We understand all that. Paul's saying, hey, I'm a shepherd of you. I know you, and I know that it's going to be easy to kind of disobey and just because I'm not there, but you got to hold on to that authority. That authority's inside of you. It's not just me on an external sense influencing you. So he says these two directives, the first one, he's going to lay it down for us. Here's what I want you to do. Second half of verse 12, it says this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How do you have this life of influence? How do you overcome? How do you bubble up no matter what happens around you? The first thing you need to do is you need to work out your salvation. Now that may initially come as maybe a little bit of a paradox to some of us, right? Because we think about scripture and when we just look at that directive, like work out your salvation, man, well that doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. I mean, because there's a lot of other passages that would tell us that it's not really us working for our salvation. It's what God does, right? John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Yet in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, it says, Believe on the Lord and you will be saved. Okay, well, which is it? You know, is God the one that's drawing us, or is it us making a decision and believing? It's seemingly a paradox. And there's more of those in Scripture, right? The idea that Brian talked about last week, that Jesus was fully God, and yet he was fully man at the same time. How is that possible? The idea that this word, that this Scripture was written by human sinful authors, and yet it is the Word of God without error. You see a lot of these seemingly mysterious paradoxes in the world of Christianity, and certainly this is a passage that could cause some confusion as the command is, work out your salvation. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we see that Paul says, it is by grace that you are saved through faith, and it is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. So how are we commanded to work it out, but yet it's not of works? What's going on here? I think the evidence is pretty clear when you think about working out your salvation. It's not working for your salvation or working on it. It's working it out. It's exercising it. It's actually doing something with God and his gift within you. We see the same law at work in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. It says, Paul says, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. So it's all God. He's pouring out this grace upon me. He's drawn me to himself. That is true. 
But what does Paul say in the second half of that verse? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Northwest Community Church, this Sunday morning, early service, losing an hour, fighting snow. I want us to wake up here this morning and understand that if we are really going to be this kind of people that shine our light to the world and are happy, we need to work out. Amen? We need to start doing something. We need to start acting, not just sitting here, understanding, thinking, knowing, talking, but taking the next step and actually doing it. We see a beautiful illustration of that in the Old Testament. This is so amazing. Exodus chapter 14. Here's Moses. Here's what, he's, he's there with his people. He's leading them into the promised land, leading them out of slavery. Uh, if you know your Bible, you're familiar with the story. And uh, here's what Moses says to his people to motivate them, to get them fired up. He says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And isn't that the way many of us, just the first half of that verse, like to live? Like, all right, oh, it's just stand firm, okay? The Lord's going to be the one to do everything, okay? He's going to be the one to fight for you while you just sit here and be silent? Okay, cool, that's a good deal, right? But then I love it. The Lord comes in then and kind of interjects, or shall I say unpacks, or kind of, you know, uh, enlightens a little bit. And he says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Do you see the dichotomy there? Moses, oh, just stay silent. God's going to be the one to fight for you. Everything's going to be okay. And God's saying, uh, yeah, I'm going to be the one to fight for you. But you know what? You kind of have to take some steps too. You need to be the one to spring into action. As for you, Moses, lift up the staff, stretch out your hand over the seas, and the sons of Israel shall go through in the midst and uh, the sea and dry land. And yes, I'm going to do it, but there's an element that you need to step out and do it as well. God's purposes for them is to be accomplished through them. And how many times do we see slow, stagnant, meaningless, ineffective Christianity? Because the attitude is, you know what? God's just going to do all the work. Let go and let God. And I'm just going to stay here and fill my mind with more and more knowledge. And just, you know, and I'll let God do all the work and, and make all the difference. But that's not what we see here at all. We see an element of action and of working it out, not working for it, but exercising it that really is important. You ever met somebody that was so refreshing because they actually did what they said they were going to do? They didn't just have the attitude, but they had the action. It's not just what they think, but what they actually do. Not just what's internal, but what's external. Not what they feel, but what they actually finish. It's great to hear that you love your neighbor or that you forgive your spouse or that you're thankful for your family, but the real question is what are you going to do about it? I want to tell you here this morning that my father, Richard Hines, and my mother are right here sitting up front. Growing up, I heard a certain phrase in my home all the time. When I was in elementary school, maybe even early middle school, I'd never gotten in trouble in high school, really. So it was mostly way back then. But the phrase was this, now, Jerry, what are you doing? 
That was the exact tone. That was the exact, now, Jerry, what are you doing? That was it all the time. Am I right, Dad? And even to this day, my sister's here as well. And my sisters, you know, we're all like in our late 30s and 40s and they'll call me up or we're making plans as mature adulting people now. And they'll be like, now, Jerry, what are you doing? It's kind of a little buzzword in our house because that's what I heard because obviously I was doing something not good, causing trouble, wreaking havoc. But I thought about that this week. Ironic that my dad is actually here because I'm thinking about this whole idea of filling my mind with scripture and I've been to seminary and I've been a pastor and I'm trying to make a difference, but it's almost as if God is almost saying to me and should be saying to me on a daily basis, Jerry, what are you doing? Not in the negative like I'm doing something wrong or stupid or dangerous, but in the positive, what are you actually doing? What are you acting on? How are you impacting? How are you influencing? Not what do you know, but what are you doing? And that's huge for us here in the beginning of this particular passage. Notice it says after that phrase, work out your salvation, it says with fear and trembling. And man, this carries along the idea for us that this is something that's really serious. This is not something to be taken lightly. The Apostle Paul used that same phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, when Paul says, man, when I was with you, I was in weakness, and I was in fear, and I was in much trembling. Not that we're afraid in a physical sense, like God's going to somehow hurt us, but the idea, the bigger idea behind that phrase is we're taking it so seriously and we've got so much regard for the holiness of God and our relationship with God that we don't want to mess it up. I guess what I want to throw out to us this morning is as you think about your Christian walk, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, I know we've got people that come every week that don't buy in, that aren't convinced yet, that are just checking stuff out, and we want you to know that we love you and you're welcome here. But man, if you say, yes, I do believe Jesus, yes, I follow Jesus, I'm a son or a daughter of him, I've made that decision, is there an element of that holy reverence and fear and trembling as you work out your salvation? Do you take it that seriously? I can recall one time I was visiting in the office of, of another pastor friend who was at staff at another church, and I noticed there was a pillow and there was a sleeping bag and, and kind of a bathroom bag right there in his office. And I'm like, hey, man, you got a Boy Scout retreat this weekend? You having a sleepover? What's going on? He's like, oh, I actually slept here in the office last night. And I'm like, what? Why did you do that? He's like, well... To tell you the truth, my wife is out of town, my kids are out of town, and this pastor said to me, I don't trust myself enough when my wife and my kids are not home by myself with the television there and, and the computer there that I actually came here to the church office and I just slept here without any electronics. That's what I did. That's somebody who takes their walk and their life and their morality seriously. And that could be a lesson for many of us. 
I love that it's clarified shortly after, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take it seriously for it's not your own effort. It's not your own work, right? It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, man, that energy that Paul was talking about that allows him to be enabled to do things doesn't come from himself, but it comes from God. I fear too often we, even in our spiritual walk, using this illustration of working out, are kind of looking for a shortcut, like the hundreds of inventions that have been brought to us over the years as far as getting physically fit. There are shortcuts available. Anybody remember a few years back when this thing came on the market? You're like, what is that a picture of? It's a guy, and he's got this little ab uh, electronic, uh, you know, kind of stimulator thing going on. And you can't really see it in the screen, but he's holding, you know, a video game controller. So it's like, hey, I want to work out. I want to get washboard abs so I can still do it while playing Call of Duty. If I just put this thing on and just let, let those electric things just kind of, you know, stimulate my, my ab muscles, it'll, it'll work, Right? And we all know that this is completely a crock, but there's millions of people that bought this and just ended up sore. But man, how about spiritually, do we sometimes uh, do the same thing? Do we sometimes think that, man, there's some sort of secret sauce, some sort of corner that we can cut that'll get us spiritually fit without truly requiring the hard work and the action and the stepping forward that is necessary? That's what Paul's saying, man. Point number one, you want to you wanna be mature, you want to really have joy, you want to be able to overcome, you need to work out. The second thing is, man, this, this could really be kind of the mantra for you parents. I mean, John 3.16, that's definitely verse number one you want them to memorize. I'd say a good candidate for verse number two is uh, Philippians chapter two, verse 14, right? For your kids, for yourself, We've heard this one. Do all things without grumbling or questioning or disputing. Do all things without that. Point number two, quite easy. Don't complain. The first first one is the active, work things out. What are you doing? The second one is in the negative. Oh, you know what? I know that you're doing something and you need to stop doing it. Don't complain. I love that it says all things. Do all things without grumbling, complaining, without disputing. Notice, guys, this is a command for us this morning. This is an imperative. This is not, you know, let's kind of curb the complaining a little bit, the grumbling. Let's just try to minimize it and do less today than you did yet. No. The command is you need to cut this out of your life. Because when you really think about it, the idea of grumbling, complaining, disputing, it can all be traced back to the idea of pride and authority. In other words, who is in control? Who is most important? Because you think about the majority of things that, uh, that many of us complain about, right? We complain maybe about our life or about our job and how frustrating it is. We complain about our kids. We complain when our car breaks down, etc. Like You can just pick anything and there's bound to be a complaint that can easily arise from it. But what I'm telling you and putting forth to you here this morning 
is that springs largely from authority and pride. And you're saying, I deserve the best. And anything less than that, I'm going to verbalize why I deserve it to be up here. It's a pride issue. And it's a huge issue. And it's not an issue that's, that's just for us, right? This goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Think about Adam. He was the world's first complainer, right? When he made a mistake, when he took of the apple, what did, what did he say to God? Oh, um, it was the woman that you gave me. That's the reason why. You know, it wasn't my fault. Authority, arrogance, pride. And it follows all the way down. And what I love about Paul here all throughout Philippians, especially in this passage, he references several words that are absolutely congruent to the nation of Israel and what they went through in their traveling in the wilderness. He mentions later on about a crooked and perverse generation. That's the same phrase that was used in the Old Testament in Exodus. And certainly several times where he says, do everything without grumbling and complaining. You'll remember over and over and over again, the people of Israel would grumble and murmur and complain. And it's like, it almost didn't even matter what God gave them, how miraculously he provided for them. It still rose up with a complaint and with a murmuring. Think about it. They complained in Egypt because they were all about, uh, you know, because there was slavery, and that's understandable. Well, the Lord delivered them with a miraculous um, parting of the Red Sea, and they walked through that. Three days later, they complained again about the taste of the water that God had provided. So God brought them into an oasis at Elam where there were 12 different springs of water. They camped there and it was great. But several days later, they grumbled again about a lack of food. And it's just like one thing after another after another. And then you'll remember there was Joshua and Caleb and the 10 other spies and they were going into the promised land to scope it out. The 10 came back and complained and grumbled. They're too big, you know, they're too powerful. There's no way that we can do it. And Joshua and Caleb were the two that were positive and said, you know what, God's put them in our hands. Let's do it. Let's step out. Let's act. Let's, let's make something happen. But do you remember the part of the story, what happened with those other 10? They got so disgruntled and spread these rumors and spread this negativity so much so that they chose, even for themselves, a couple of leaders to kind of lead the rebellion and they were getting ready to stone and to ultimately kill Joshua and Caleb. Do you think that positivity can cause you uh, to, to receive the angst in the ire of other people around you? That's what happened then. It almost got them killed. Just by being positive, just by having faith, the negativity and the grumbling was cancerous. And I'm here to tell you this morning, in our society, even in church ministry, the same exact thing is true. People are selfish, people are upset, people are disgruntled. Even with all the privileges that we have, we see that that's still their attitude and it shows up in the most random places. 
just the other day, just this last week. This is so fresh. I was just out uh, in my front yard, and I was uh, watering my grass, setting up a sprinkler because we reseeded. I'm just out there minding my own business, and all of a sudden, there's this huge white drone that comes hovering and comes slowly down and is just staring at me. And I'm like, and it slowly comes down, and then it just slowly lands right on my driveway, and it's just buzzing and making this weird noise. And this is like one of those cheap drones for like $99. It's like a really nice drone. And I'm like, wow, this is really weird. It's flashing, and it's got a camera, and it's kind of, you know, looking me over. And I know it's not that impressive, but... And my dog was over there, and so Charlie comes over and starts sniffing it, and like, well, I don't want him to ruin this thing. So pretty soon it's just like, and it just like totally shuts down. So, oh man, somebody must have lost it, lost battery. Who knows what happened? This is crazy. So I pick up the drone, I bring it inside, and I'm telling the kids, and they're all excited about it. Wow, we got a drone. I'm like, well, somebody obviously lost this. You know, let's got to get this back to his owner. And so I look it up online. This is like a $1,700 drone that somebody's missing. So we actually take the scan disk little thing and stick it into my computer, which is a dangerous thing. Somebody else's pictures and videos, but I'm trying to figure out where did this thing come from. So sure enough, there's a guy waving in front of his house, and I see a street number, and we start doing all this different research trying to get this thing back and actually put something on our next door neighbor uh, website, say, hey, um, or as soon as I went on there to post, somebody said, oh, I lost a drone. You know, please call immediately. So of course I call this guy right away. And he is so thankful. He's like, I am so sorry, man. I was flying this thing. I just got it. And you literally saved our marriage, the fact that you found this drone for me. Because my wife didn't want me to get it, but I was driving. And my daughter was in a little car, my three-year-old daughter, and she just kind of crashed in one of those little play cars. And she got hurt. And that's why I quickly you know, put the thing down to go help her. And that's when it landed. And I am so thankful. I'll come over right now. Thank you so much. Came over. We had a great connection. Exchanged numbers. We're going to hang out sometime. It's going to be amazing, right? It's the least I could do as a neighbor. But right under this guy's post, hey, somebody please help me, I lost my drone. Right under, this lady posts something and says, I'm really trying to bite my tongue here, but maybe you should take some lessons before flying a drone in our neighborhood. And here I made the connection with this. Some other neighbors hopping up, complaining, grumbling, negativity, offending. Like, hello, you're clueless, you don't know what you're doing. And I'm telling you the truth, I had to bite my fingers, you know, because I was about ready to be like, oh, hey, by the way, his daughter got hurt, which is why this thing went. And you know what? Most of the neighbors here, we love to help each other, so keep your negative comments to yourself. So I seriously was about ready to blaze something like that on there, and then I remembered, you know what? I have invited several people to church uh, publicly in our neighborhood when things were snowy or whatever. Maybe I should, you know. And then sure enough, her post was just taken off completely by some administrator. But the point is, people are so negative and so quick to criticize and so quick to undercut. And that was happening in the church as well, and Paul commanded it. Man, forget all that. He continues on. He says, uh, you may be blameless and innocent when you don't grumble. When you don't complain, you will be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You want to be shiny you want to reflect the joy and reflect the happiness of who God is and what he's done? 
The way you do it is not by grumbling and questioning and disputing and complaining. It's by having a testimony that says, hey, even though things have been difficult, I've got a stronger power within me that proves this joy and that shows this joy. I've got a short video clip of one of our members here at Northwest who, as we were going through this and I was trying to rack my brain, man, who do we have? We've got many, but man, who really exemplifies this idea about being handed a difficult lot in life, being handed a past that's full of tragedy and difficulty and even right now constantly lives in suffering and yet when you see her coming in in her wheelchair, there's a smile on her face. I don't know how many of you know Kristen and Will Knipe, but check out this brief story about what's happened in their life and how she still finds joy. So I'm Kristen Knipe, um, and I was a missionary kid. My parents were Camps Crusade. Um, I grew up over in Africa, and I came back when I was nine. Um, so really, that was all I knew through my early years. Came back, um, really didn't expect to stay in the States. I liked it for about a year, and then I was like, all right, I'm ready to go back. This isn't home. Um, we struggled a lot, I'd say, as a family. My brothers and I um, actually developed an eating disorder in high school um, around 14 and had it through all of high school and into college. Um, really struggled a lot with that. So my walk with God, I, you know, growing up in a Christian home, knew all the language. Um, around 14, just said, you know, God, if you can't help my family, help what we're struggling with right now, then I'm done. Um, not a great thing to give God an ultimatum, but when he didn't fix it like I wanted, I said, all right, I'm done, and I walked away. Um, and I really didn't walk back until around 19 um, with my eating disorder. I knew I wouldn't survive going the direction I was going. I went into an, uh, a treatment center and you know, tried to get my life back straight for about a year when I came home is when I met Will and was doing really well. And then you know, I, I noticed as I would walk away from God, my eating disorder would come back. Um, so it came back, you know, struggled a little bit more. We would date on and off, but just I wasn't doing well. It wasn't stable, I'd say, until finally 24, 25, went back in for another treatment. And finally was, you know, called out God, I can't do this. I'm, you know, life is terrible right now. I can't, I can't live this way. So definitely, um, through my eating disorder, um, I think I was constantly looking for something. Um, obviously, the typical term that we've heard, like the God-shaped hole in your heart, when God wasn't there, I was trying to fill it with food or with other people. Um, but Will was kind of the constant in my life. No matter how much I tried to push him away, he was kind of there, um, helping me out, showing unconditional love, which Really, in looking back, he showed the love of Christ because the stuff that I put him through, most anybody would run screaming. Um, but he was he was there. Um, so we got married, and then things were pretty good. Um, then I started having these weird physical things going on. My heart rate would go crazy. I would feel dizzy, and I'd have these episodes that just started getting closer and closer together. And then five months after marriage, 
I woke up one morning, I couldn't stand up anymore. So at first they had no idea what was going on. Um, I, we were going to see a cardiologist, neurologist at UNC. Um, I think it was a neurologist at UNC that said it was an autonomic disorder. So the automatic processes of my body weren't functioning properly. And three months into that, we found out, surprise, we were pregnant. Um, which we'd already been told that it would be really hard to get pregnant. I can see God's joy radiating through Kristen by the many instances where she wants to still serve others. Um, I've seen plenty of times where something will come up and she's wanting to volunteer whether or not it's making meals for other people or even on Sundays when she's, uh, every Sunday actually, when she's working with the children's ministry. Um, she doesn't want any reason why she can't go and still serve other people or serve God. And there's times where definitely I feel hopeless and don't don't like what's going on, but at the same time I see God in so many things. Um, even see his blessing in the fact that I have an illness. Um, I think my favorite verse has always been 2 Corinthians 12 9 that in my weakness he's strong and I know my my uh, way I usually would handle things is I would always handle them and I think God kind of gave this to me to be like you can't handle stuff you have to ask for help you have to rely on me because you can't do it now just imagine then as a, as a mother of three, um, confined to a wheelchair most of the time, at home, trying to keep a handle on the kids, and yet on Sundays, coming in here, big beaming smile on her face, ready to serve every week in Northwest Kids. When you think about examples of somebody who is shining and reflecting that happiness and that joy of God in serving, I think of Kristen amongst many others here. But I guess our question here is, what are you going to do with these challenges? I just want you to close your eyes for a second. I just want to throw a couple of questions out to you. As you're thinking about this text, as you're thinking about this scripture and what's been spoken here this morning, I want to ask you a couple of questions. In your life right now, what do you need to work out? Who do you need to apologize to? What needs to happen? What will and what work, what desires and what actions do you need to confess and renew here this morning so that God won't be saying to you, what are you doing? Man, that second piece, what grumbling and complaining do you need to stop and repent of? It was serious business among the nation of Israel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says they were grumbling in the wilderness and so they got destroyed by the destroyer. God's punishment on them for their pride and for their arrogance and for their authority and for their grumbling was pretty severe. 
the same is true of us today. What do you need to confess of? Do you need to stop that disposition of negativity and entitlement from God or from others? We want this morning to be a morning of that, of that freedom. So God, we do thank you for who you are and what you've done and for your powerful word. And even just a couple of short verses, Lord, you've given us so much to think about. So Father, I just ask God that you would allow us to shine like stars in the universe. Lord, to reflect your goodness in a dark and a wicked and a negative and an evil world. Let us be bulletproof, God. Let us be uh, resilient and buoyant so that nothing can get us down. God, we know that's not possible in our own strength. That's why it's you who works in us. And we just thank you for that this morning, God. Use your word by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In your son's name.